Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC. I'm joined today by three panelists to discuss an absolutely crucial topic for optimizing antimicrobial use in all of our patients, and that is collaborations between the antimicrobial stewardship team and our colleagues in the microbiology lab. We are going to focus this episode on things that every stewardship and microbiology lab should know about each other, ideas on where you can get started building these relationships, and then also describing how to set goals and accomplish quality improvement projects that ultimately benefit patient care. So our first panelist is Dr. Romney Humphreys. She is a professor at Vanderbilt University and the medical director of the microbiology laboratory at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She's also a member of the CLSI AST Committee, the IDSA Diagnostic Committee, and the CAP Microbiology Committee. So we're thrilled to have her and her wealth of experience today. Romney, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of this panel. It's gonna be fun. Thanks, I think so too. This is one of my favorite topics and you guys are just an all-star crew. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Our next panelist is Dr. Mary Hutton. She is an antimicrobial stewardship and infectious diseases pharmacist at Utah Valley Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is part of the Intermountain Healthcare Network. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi everyone, thanks for having me. Also really excited for this talk. And our last panelist is Dr. Joe Luckgring, a medical officer in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Joe is a physician who's trained in both infectious diseases and clinical microbiology, so bringing both sides of the fence to our conversation to round us out today. The views expressed by Joe during this podcast are his own, and they do not necessarily represent the position of the CDC. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right, you guys. So let's dive right in. As I said, I'm very excited for this topic. I think the micro lab is one of the coolest places in the hospital. It's also the glue that holds like all of our antibiotic decision-making together because we live and die by the culture and susceptibility reports and by testing turnaround and what we can diagnose in our patients. And so I think it's so cool. And I know when I was a PGY2 training in infectious diseases pharmacy, I did a whole month in the microbiology lab as my first rotation. Like that's was the core of getting to know those key players in order to then, you know, practice the rest of my year and, and having have met them. And it really was one of my favorite rotations, even, even after the end of the year, because I think meeting all of the technologists and understanding the workflows and collaborating with them just really set me up to be pretty successful in improving patient care. And so I think that's where I want us to start. I want you guys to talk to our listeners about your advice on how to establish a relationship with the microbiology lab and with the antimicrobial stewardship team, because not everyone is going to be able to be a resident and do a dedicated rotation. And so Romney, I, why don't you start us off because you recently started your position at Vanderbilt. And so I think you are closest to moving to a new place and, and establishing a new relationship. What did you learn and how did you start to form relationships with your stewardship team? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, I, I mean, I think first off, you just have to establish the connections and I can be a little pushy. I can 
self-invite myself to things. And I think that that's honestly the way that you're successful when you're trying to get established and get to know people. And so, you know, my experience at Vanderbilt, we have a fantastic pediatric stewardship team and adult stewardship team, and they have kind of these high level institutional meetings and a committee and they're like, well, we'll have you sit on that. And I'm like, no, 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 I want to get into like the nuts and bolts kind of meetings. And, you know, often it doesn't necessarily apply to the lab, but in my experience, both at Vanderbilt and at UCLA, um, stuff comes up in those meetings. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, did you know the lab did this? Or, oh, I had no idea. That's how you guys are interpreting this. Let me take it back. So I think, you know, just being at the table and being part of the discussions is the foundation to being able to kind of move forward. And then I think, you know, as people talk about getting engaged with the lab, I think what you mentioned, Erin, um, which is just coming to the lab and seeing the techs and seeing their faces, getting to know them is really key. Uh, when I was at UCLA, we had an off-campus lab. And so it was not always very straightforward for people to just, you know, pop by the lab during rounds to see the cultures and talk to the techs. But um, I'll tell you the the fellows and the uh, pharmacists that were the most successful were the ones that, you know, hoofed it over to the lab through LA traffic to come see and meet the people. So I, th I think it's like that FaceTime is really important even today. Yeah. I couldn't agree more because there's things you just don't know unless you know, and like you <laughs> see them. So like, I love what you said about being present at the stewardship meeting. There's always stuff that comes up off the cuff and, and being present is important. And I, I remember in my rotation, I was sitting on the respiratory bench next to the technologist, just learning like all this mind blowing stuff about how they look at the cultures. And I realized in sitting with her, I was like, oh, so you look at, you know, this type of culture at 1 PM and then enter the results into the EHR. And I realized I was like, you know, we round at 7 AM and those would probably be helpful to have earlier in the day than later in the day. Is there any way you can look at that batch first and the second batch? Yeah in the afternoon. And they were like, oh yeah, we had no idea. That's fine. And that's something you'd like, it's not wrong, right? The mm -hmm. results just coming in at 4 PM instead of 8 AM. And that's something you'd never know unless you were present. So I think that's really cool advice, which, um, so Mary pick, pick up where I left off then from the stewardship pharmacist side, you know, how did you start to form these relationships? What kinds of things have you learned? Yeah. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to do a PGY2 and ID. Um, and I was lucky enough that my first rotation was also in the micro lab. And I think that was really important to me because like you said, you can form those relationships with those techs, see how they're doing their job um, and be able to incorporate that into your practice. So when someone calls and says, you know, hey, uh, I'm waiting for this culture, you can say, well, it's going to be done today or it's going to be done tomorrow and make decisions about different stewardship things faster um, or persuade people to, you know, take off Vanco a little bit faster because your result isn't going to be as fast as they thought. Um, and, you know, not only with lab, lab personnel, but I also got to, you know, make, have a solid foundation in micro as far as um, the different procedures and what different I guess, diagnostic uh, machines that we had in the lab. And then also I was lucky enough, all of my ID fellows, uh, physician fellows did the same rotation with me. And so I was able to make those relationships with them and show them that I do have a good foundation, um, foundational knowledge on micro and, and build those trusting relationships to begin with. Um, when I came out here to start my job, our lab's interesting because we have a central lab for most things, but then we also have on-site labs, um, at least at my hospital. And so getting FaceTime with both of those, um, uh, both of those kind of lab supervisors was important. And then also our, our, our 
stewardship committee for the system, our, our micro uh, supervisors sit on that. And, and just like Romney said, not everything is micro that we talk about there, but it can almost always be assimilated to something in the micro lab. So it's, it's really important to have them um, on those committees. And I think even just once you first start your job, just going in and meeting them and seeing what their projects are, what their goals are, because uh, most of the time those, those can align with your stewardship um, endeavors as well. That's awesome. Thanks for that insight. I love, love that you said at the end, aligning your goals, because often we can help each other, right? We're mm-hmm. all accountable for certain metrics. We're all responsible for certain goals and we all care about patients in the same way. And so uh, I think we find those goals align more frequently than not, uh, which Joe, I think, and I also like that Mary said that you hung out with your fellows and your physicians in, in this yeah. experience. So Joe, you uh, have both ID and micro training, anything to add from that perspective? I'll just reiterate what has already been said about the FaceTime and um, interacting directly with people. Emory is where I did my both my fellowships, and we had the practice of daily micro rounds um, in which the techs, the micro director, the ID attendings, down fellow resident med student, and the ID pharmacists were all together walking around at the different workstations and benches and looking at interesting cultures and it's just so much easier to feel comfortable calling for other things when you know the people and you pick up all kinds of um, little tidbits and techniques that you wouldn't have known if you weren't physically going down there. And I think Aaron, it's similar to you. I thought the micro lab was so cool when I did it as an ID fellow and I ended up deciding I wanted to kind of dedicate a large portion of my career to it, which I've known other people at Emory who it's been a similar thing. I think the like practice of daily rounds really was helpful to me and I think can be helpful to others. I realized that like it might be something unique to academic medical centers and as labs go off site, that can be more difficult to maintain, but anything that can be done to try and try and still do it, I think is very good. I'd say to that end too, you know, I think that it's it's important for the the clinical teams to come into the lab and kind of see the workflow, but I think it's equally important for the micro people to get out of the lab. And we, I mean, traditionally we're not great at this, let's be honest. And so, you know, I've when I was at UCLA, I had the fortune, you know, fortunate situation that I trained there. So during fellowship, I spent, I don't know, eight months rounding with ID and really understanding that clinical kind of cadence and pace and and needs. Here at Vanderbilt, it's been a little bit weird because we're in the middle of a pandemic when I first started. So it's not a great time to be, you know, trying to push your way into daily uh, patient rounds. Uh, But recently I've been rounding in the emergency department and it is fascinating to see from a microbiologist perspective, some of the things and the needs and the challenges that they have there, where, you know, even things like blood culture contamination rates, we can probably help each other to address that challenge. So I think it's equally important for the lab to kind of get out of, out of the lab. That's so awesome. Yeah. I love, I love that perspective. Uh, ED stewardship is a near and dear little niche specialty to my heart too. And it is, you have to understand their workflows to really optimize where you can insert your tests to there. I also will say, I think it is cool (laughs) to inspire. I don't Romney. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I saw you give a talk at ECMID in 2018 and I was, I was real like new on the scene and I didn't, I didn't know you obviously, but it was so good. And I was so inspired and I was like, micro is so cool. And this is like a very prominent, like 
awesome woman in infectious diseases. And I was like, this whole specialty is just wonderful. And I knew I'd like made the right career choice. So, uh, very, that's like the best feedback. Thank you. (laughs) It's like a, I'm having like a moment now being, being on this, being on this podcast with you and talking about all these very cool things. Um, But okay. So we formed all these awesome relationships. I think, oh, Joe, I was going to say too. And so Romney, it's funny. You mentioned the pandemic. I was going to say micro rounds are like straight fire. They're so awesome. If you're not doing them at your institution, start them now that we're fully vaccinated and we can safely have micro rounds. We should bring these kinds of like handshake stewardship, handshake consult things back because they really are the best. So we have formed bonds. We have taken We've met together, we have common goals, and now it's time to take action. So the CDC has added an implementation resource, which they've titled, quote, key activities and roles for microbiology laboratory staff in antibiotic stewardship programs. And they added this in August of 2020. So you may have missed it because everyone was a little busy last year, but it's an awesome document. And we encourage you to go to the CDC website and check it out. We will also include a link to this document in the show notes of this podcast episode. So you can click right from your phone. Joe, I want you to tell us all about this document. Why was, why was this developed by the CDC and what do people need to know about the contents? Sure. Thanks, Aaron. So CDC updated the core elements for hospital antibiotic stewardship back in 2019. And as part of those updates, several areas in which the microbiology lab can positively impact stewardship was added to the core elements. Um, And so this document is kind of a synthesis of all those different mentions. And so the core elements document is quite long. I think, I don't know, 40 pages or something like that. And so this is just a distillation of the things that are most directly relevant to uh, the micro lab. And so five of the seven core elements, I think, are kind of touched on or have relevance to the micro lab. And these are uh, the hospital leadership commitment, action, tracking, reporting, and education. The document just kind of goes through all the different ways in which the micro lab Um, is involved in stewardship and it gives a bunch of examples. And so one example that we spend a decent amount of time on is diagnostic stewardship. Uh, So diagnostic stewardship is kind of a mirror of antibiotic stewardship. So when antibiotic stewardship, you're talking about giving the right drug to the right patient at the right time. Diagnostic stewardship is ordering the right test for the right patient at the right time. Uh, So even though, you know, it's not usually the lab who is, ordering these tests, they have a tremendous impact um, on the way these tests are used and interpreted. And so, um, for example, the document talks about what I call the pre-analytic phase. So, you know, before the test gets down to the micro lab, so the micro lab has an important role in educating people on how to properly collect specimens to make sure that it gets in the right tube. Romney mentioned blood culture contamination earlier. That's a huge issue that the lab can positively impact. Um, And then also establishing criteria for rejecting samples. So for example, rejecting form stools that have the C. diff test ordered. So the lab has a big role to play there. And then also on the post-analytics, so after the test has been completed and the results are being released back into the medical record, the way that things are framed can have a large impact. And so common example would be that the lab should be not reporting out um, AST results on something that's a contaminant. So if you have 
contaminated urine culture or uh, one out of two coag negative staff, you know, stating that this is a probable contaminant can help uh, improve antibiotic stewardship and direct people into the proper use. Um, so the document goes through diagnostic stewardship and then also just really kind of stresses and hammers education that, you know, the micro lab has so much expertise and knowledge about the proper usage of these tests that uh, people who are actually ordering the tests really need to understand that. So whether it's educational initiatives or comments and reports or whatever, it's just very important that the micro lab kind of inserts that perspective into the antibiotic stewardship program. I think um, my girl Mary has the core elements like wallpapered in her in her house because she's a goddess of all things stewardship. So Mary, I'm coming to you next to, to follow up on this document because it does. It's awesome. And when our listeners get a chance to read through it, this document very nicely mirrors the core elements. And so it puts the micro lab in the context of antimicrobial stewardship, which is how synergistic these things are. So Joe, you hit on a lot of them, but it goes through leadership commitment. And I think that's kind of a given. And I like that you mentioned education. I actually want us to come back to education later in the episode, because I think education is not a standalone thing, but rather education needs to be an important part of every action initiative. We know that education alone isn't enough to sustain an intervention. You need some kind of forcing function to really change behavior and change culture. And so I want to talk about action, which of course is another element of this document and of stewardship. And I want each of you to share kind of your favorite or most impactful stewardship and microbiology collaboration that you've done and implemented. Cause I think our listeners really value, we hear like, oh, this is good. You should be doing these things, but it's hard to know where to start. And so what are some, you know, concrete takeaways or ideas that they can maybe implement at their institutions? And Mary, I'm coming to you um, because you've had one, you have one of the best publications I've seen in this space with one of the best titles um, with your microbiology nudge paper, which was published in open forum infectious diseases in 2018. Um, Listeners, again, you can find the citation for this paper in the show notes. Mary, can you tell us about this project um, and about its impact? Yeah, so I think that paper really highlights how great communication can make a huge impact on antimicrobial prescribing. And so essentially the Henry Ford stewardship team, Dr. Kenny, Dr. Davis, and our microbiology lab colleagues, Dr. Tibbetts and Dr. Samuel, collaborated on this project. And what they wanted to do was really communicate how commensal flora respiratory cultures, like what does that mean? Like to the end user, what does commensal flora mean? And um, what should we be doing with antibiotics when that culture result comes? Um, So pre-project, the culture just stated, like most of our respiratory cultures probably do, um, commensal flora only or commensal flora, something like that. And so their idea was, can we change the culture comment to highlight the absence of some key organisms um, so we could you know, promote de-escalation? And so they changed the, the culture comment to say commensal flora only, um, no Staph aureus, MRSA, or Pseudomonas aeruginosa um, identified. Um, and that was to really prompt the provider to discontinue, you know, our anti-MRSA agents, vancolinazolid, or de-escalate anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams for patients, um, you know, that may have HAP or VAP, um, or come in with um, risk factors for a multidrug-resistant organism pneumonia. 
And so what they found was, is that before and after the change in reporting um, was that antimicrobials were de-escalated in 73% of the patients in the post-intervention group compared to only 39% in the pre-intervention group. Um, and then also after adjusting for an Apache score less than or equal to 15 and a Charleston comorbidity index of less than three, uh, the comment it was associated with a 5.5-fold uh, increased odds of de-escalation. And I mean, that's a free intervention that you can make that takes no time for, for some labs. Others, it could be a little bit more challenging, but that's just changing how you, you know, report commensal flora in your respiratory cultures. And what that looked like as far as days of therapy, so the pre-intervention group got a full seven days of vancozosin, vancocephapine, whatever you do at your institution, and then the post-intervention group got five days. So um, still a little bit longer than um, probably we'd like to see, but uh, still getting it de-escalated um, before a full duration of therapy was completed. Um, and, and you know, I just think it's really fascinating that just the way you change things can really highlight what a prescriber is looking for. And that's like, what's not in that culture that I don't need to, to cover anymore. Um, and we, I know we're gonna talk about education a little bit later, but I think they go hand in hand. And so like, I specifically remember the big posters that we had um, printed out. We took all to the, all the ICUs on the floors and it essentially had pictures of culture plates. And you know, this is what Staph aureus looks like on a culture. This is what Pseudomonas uh, looks like on a culture plate. And this is the things we're looking for. And so if they're not there, we feel comfortable enough or if they're not there uh, in the significant growth, then we're comfortable saying this is mostly commensal flora. It's such a good paper. I encourage everyone to read it. It's such a, like you said, it's free. It was a free initiative. It just took people putting their brains together and changing how they report. Um, we actually did that where I trained as well, I think from you guys. And it on when we were rounding, it became culture of the institution. Like we'd be in the ICU and say, can we change Vanxosin to Unison for this non-pneumonia? And the attending would say, as soon as the rule out comment comes up. And we're like, okay. Like it just made them feel comfortable, you know, and it became right. institutional culture that they'd wait for that. And then all of a sudden unison was fine. So such a, such valuable work that you did. Thank you for that. Romney, your turn. What's your favorite micro mm -hmm. Stewie collab? You probably have like 4 yeah. million that are valuable. Like, I know I've been like, <laughs> Hmm, what should I talk about? I mean, so I think that the cool thing about this is that you can do really, really basic stuff and have a huge impact and you can do really complicated stuff and have a huge impact, but it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to have an impact, right? Um, so it, one thing that's been interesting to me starting a new institution is, you know, like the culture is so different everywhere you go. Um, so one of the first things, you know, walking into the micro lab, um, I spent some time, you know, sitting on the benches like you do to kind of really understand our practices. And we were in the habit of performing identification and susceptibility testing on every single thing that grew from a blood culture, regardless of whether or not it was a likely contaminant, which like my head exploded a little bit when I found this out. I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing this anymore. So, you know, again, it came for free and the lab loved me because I'm like, you know, all these contaminants, you don't have to work them up anymore. Like we're done. We're not going to, you know, so like it saved work on the lab end. And um, we had our, our stewardship pharmacist, Austin Ng, who's actually presenting this at the World Microbe Forum, do a little study to look at vancomycin usage um, in the post-intervention phase, which was looking at, you know, again, just saying, hey, coagulase negative staph in a single set, it's a contaminant. And uh, we saw a significant reduction in vancomycin usage, vancomycin trough levels being dropped, like all these things, right? Really easy, easy, low hanging fruits. So again, like, you know, if you make your matrix with high effort, high reward, low effort, high reward, you know, this was like one of the ones that was as far up in the low effort, but high reward um, kind of bucket. 
So that one was a fun one and it was easy. We did it like in a weekend. Um, I, and I should say Austin did a tremendous amount of work, you know, measuring it after the fact, but the actual intervention was easy. Um, There's nothing then, a pharmacist loves more than like looking at using less vanco. I Christ. think we like, I think that's how we like get our wings. <laughs> we're like, we're like, we did it. Passed, yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, we've done more sophisticated things too. So uh, one really near and dear to my heart project because it kind of incorporated the micro and the PKPD and all these like cool aspects was um, looking at developing alternative ampicillin breakpoints for enterococcus in urine. Um, so we at UCLA had a huge amount of VRE. I mean, it was a real problem for us. And, you know, you'd wind up with somebody who has VRE in their urine. So is it really an infection or not? Probably not. But anyways, it's being treated and everybody's being treated with Daptor or Linezolid, which is nuts for these, you know, probably colonizers. So we implemented um, a new rule where we quit doing susceptibility testing on them. We did a big study to look at how high the MICs get, which is well within what you're going to achieve in the urine with ampicillin. And we just put on the report like, hey, use ampicillin if you're really going to treat this, if it's an uncomplicated infection. And we saw uh, like this huge reduction in daptomycin usage. So again, you know, it was a little bit more sophisticated because technically by current breakpoints, these things would be considered resistant to ampicillin, but for that anatomical site, they weren't. So that was another kind of fun, more academic one that we did. That is my favorite thing to tell a physician that you can use ampicillin for this uncomplicated mm -hmm. UTI, even though it says resistant, mm -hmm. we can do this. It's mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we just, we just, you know, we just put on the report and use ampicillin. We didn't even test them anymore after a while. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Joe, do you have a, a story of your own? Yeah, so I recall a time when I was rounding on ID service and we were seeing a patient in the ICU who was doing very poorly with uh, enterobacter cloacae complex uh, pneumonia and kind of reviewing the record, we noted that the patient um, originally the four or five days earlier had had the same organism cultured, had been diagnosed with pneumonia, had been started on ceftriaxone and because it was susceptible, uh, which is what the AST report showed. And then five days later, the patient was failing therapy and then they recultured him. And then now the interbacter cloacae complex was resistant to every beta-lactam except for meropenem. And so, um, this was then brought to the micro lab. And then um, I think they had previously had comments on their enterobacter cloaches, but they had switched ATIs or something. And when it switched over, like the comment did, like, got dropped out of the uh, medical record. And so there, a comment got added about caution with using third generation cephalosporins for treating serious enterobacter infections. You know, some of these things like, that example is, you know, pretty much anybody having to do with the micro lab or ID would immediately like recognize that, but just realizing that the people who are actually prescribing antibiotics are not always experts in, you know, every nuance of antibiotic therapy. And a lot of people, unfortunately, see an AST report as a menu. You can just choose anyone that has an S by it. Um, and so education initiatives or comments that could be added to kind of help you know, guide therapy so that, you know, bad outcomes like that don't happen or can be beneficial. 
Yeah. And that ceftriaxone one is less than cefepime two, obviously. <laughs> so, uh, they, I, I mean, it's a great point and that actually speaks to how micro stewardship need to collaborate. And so does information technology. Uh, I have a colleague at a large academic center in the United States that's been trying to suppress ceftriaxone on sterile sites for like two years. And, you know, it just, it takes all these people to, to get these things done. So very neat. I want to pivot pretty harshly into some things. We talked about a lot of happy stories. I want to, I want to pivot into something controversial uh, and we'll see where this goes. I want to talk about cascade reporting and or suppressing certain results, which goes, I guess, hand in hand exactly with that enterobacter ceftriaxone conversation. So Joe, I'm going to have you kick us off again, because the CDC also has a document on this topic. This document is selective reporting of antimicrobial susceptibility testing results, and it's, it's a primer for stewardship programs that the CDC put out. Can you kind of walk us through what this document says? Sure. Yeah. So this document is really intended for non-laboratory personnel to kind of help understand some of the reasons why labs might not be reporting out a particular result. Part of the impetus for this document is that I was hearing about like misunderstandings about why AST results were not being shown up in the medical record. And so people would, I think some people like know about cascade reporting, but they don't know about all the other different reasons why a particular result may not be in the medical record. And so this, this document really just goes through all those different reasons. And so, and the list is, you know, long and it could be a contaminant, there could be intrinsic resistance or the result could be implied because either the type of organism is or the um, initial AST report can kind of lead you to be able to know what the uh, result for an unreported drug would be. There are oftentimes um, limitations or restrictions on certain AST devices and so unless the lab uses another method, they oftentimes, for some bug drug combinations, they can't report out a particular result. There's actually one paper that I saw come out in clinical infectious diseases in 2019 that really hit this home in which an institution was reporting out results for enterococcus and the linazolid and daptomycin results weren't being reported because for this particular ATI, there was a limitation and you had to ver confirm the AST with a separate, me separate method if you wanted to report out resistance. And people on the clinical side were just assuming that because, you know, daptomycin and linazolid resistance is very rare and we don't see a result here so we can use it. And so not like understanding that it wasn't tested, it's not being suppressed due to cascade reporting, it's being suppressed for another reason. Uh, and like not understanding why it wasn't there uh, can lead to errors. And so this document is just trying to educate people about the different reasons why AST results may not be available. And then with regards to cascade reporting, we don't really you know, get into guidance about how to do cascade reporting or anything like that, or nothing prescriptive. But I will note that both, you know, there's a, in the antibiotic stewardship guidelines that IDSA and Shea put out, they do recommend the practice and it's mentioned as a practice in the CDC core elements and CLSI's table 1A has, you know, particular aspects about cascade reporting. And so this document is not intended to tell people how to do it, but it's just trying to help educate and inform people in case they want to do it at their institution, it gives them some insight into some of the background. 
Thank you for that. And so I, I think you teed us up very well for the discussion on cascade reporting and what the possible controversies are. It on one hand can really guide people to use certain antimicrobials. On the other, you run the risk of people using antimicrobial agents that may or may not be active and they're making assumptions on things they're not seeing. So let's just get started. Romney, what are your thoughts on cascade reporting? So I, I mean, I'm a fan and, and, but with some caveats, right? So first off, you know, the thing that came to mind as Joe was explaining that, that story is I think that people have in their minds, this idea that the test card panels that the lab runs are like designed with some higher level understanding of what is on formulary at a given institution or is important in clinically. No, I mean, it's based on market research. And so like you have all sorts of bonkers stuff on those things that you're testing and, you know, either maybe it's not on formulary or it just doesn't make sense or whatever. Right. So I think, you know, the first thing I would say is never assume if something's not on a report that it's because it's susceptible. I mean, I think that, and that's like an education piece, right? And you see this happening all the time when people try to crosswalk drugs from the same class. So, well, you know, any penems reported, so I'm going to assume meropenem's susceptible. I mean, that's super dangerous, right? We don't want to do that. So I think that's the first kind of thing I would say. And then along with that, if people understand what drugs are being tested, I think that cascade reporting is important with the caveat that if something is resistant, it should be reported regardless of whether or not it's part of your normal cascade. So if you go to the example of like an enterobacter where maybe the lab is suppressing ceftriaxone and reporting cefepime or meropenem, because that's what you want people to use. But if the isolate ceftriaxone resistant, you should be reporting that. And so it kind of brings to mind at Van about when I brought up this issue of these spice bugs, um, the the line I heard from you know some people was, well, we don't have an AMC problem here, and it's because we only ever reported ceftriaxone when it was susceptible, and people weren't reculturing patients, and so you had all this like ceftriaxone treatment failure, but it but it wasn't documented when you went and looked in the micro lab data. So I think again, you know, you need to be reporting on that resistance when you see it. So then, you know, cascade reporting has kind of two different buckets. And I guess it's like a difference between cascade and selective. So selective is don't report stuff that is dangerous. So things like on a CSF isolate that is a drug that's just not going to get into um, that compartment or uh, daptomycin on a respiratory isolate, that type of thing. Um, and then the other part of it is like more of a trying to reinforce stewardship principles through reporting drugs you want people to use. And, you know, I feel pretty strongly about the first one. The second one, I think you just need to understand the culture at your institution. And so if you know you're at an institution where people like, this is my go-to drug, I'm going to use it unless I see an R on a report, then, you know, maybe you need to keep that into consideration through your cascade reporting. Yeah. Mary, what are your thoughts? Oh, I feel like Ronnie hit like all of them. I, I, I find it really interesting. I, I've never thought about reporting resistant no matter what, because I, I think that's excellent. Um, I, that's an excellent comment. I haven't thought about it like that, but I, I don't see how that could go wrong. <laughs> I feel like that's only added great information. Uh, a physician isn't going to choose an R, uh, an R 
are resistant uh, antimicrobial to treat that, but it is really beneficial for us to see um, without calling. I think one other thing, and it's, you already kind of highlighted like daptomycin, a respiratory culture. I can't think of why we would want to report that. And, and I think one that also always keeps me up at night is like rifampin as monotherapy, that getting chosen. And I know like most, most labs probably suppress rifampin um, for um, staph aureus. Um, but I, I think that you know, out of sight, out of mind is kind of how I like to think of it, um, at least for my um, providers, because they're not always thinking like out of the box. Um, and I think it's important to remember too that you can always call the lab and ask for the other um, the other drugs on the panel or ask what was run. Um, and I think you know, as infectious disease you know clinicians or pharmacists, we know that like we can always call the lab. But I think a lot of my you know floor physicians, uh, floor pharmacists forget that it's really easy to just call the lab and ask, um, you know, why wasn't the susceptibility done? Oh, it actually was, and we accidentally hit it. Like a lot of times that can happen. So I think it's, an, it's important to remember now whatever you are doing, like those those susceptibilities are still gonna be done and you can always you can always call your micro lab. Um, and if you're considering, you know, using rifampin for a staph aureus infection, not as monotherapy, obviously, but um, to, to add for something like endocarditis, so. Yeah, I, so I have an anecdote about the staph aureus, but one thought that came to mind right away is, you know, one thing that we did when I was at UCLA is we published along with our antibiogram, the drugs that were routinely tested and the cascade rules. And so that it was available to people so that they could understand why a given drug wasn't on the report. Is it because it's just not tested routinely or is it because it's part of a cascade and there's like a reason it's not being reported? Um, not everybody used it, but at least it was available to people. So it's not like this weird black box where you don't really know what the lab is doing. But my anecdote is we had a patient with staph aureus endocarditis when I was at UCLA and it was MRSA, the vancomycin MIC was two. And at that time we've reported genomycin on our report for this idea of you know synergy. And this resident, it's like, I know about vancomycin MICs of two. I know that's bad. And so they started them on genomycin monotherapy for their stuff. Oh. <laughs> Thankfully, it was intervened on pretty quickly, but it was just like, wow. That... So after that, we quit reporting gen on those cultures. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. It keeps me up at night. <laughs> it's like the Friday afternoon, something like that happens and I don't catch it till Monday. Mm -hmm. It keeps me up at night. <laughs> I thought it was so funny though, because this poor resident, like they'd read about it, like they knew about the bank thing, but didn't quite clue into the other part. <laughs> that is a good story. That actually brings up, a, this is beyond cascading, but it brings up another good point about automated panels. Um, so Rami, to your point, like we don't get to pick what's on the panel, like they, that's how they come. Um, and then generally lagging behind drug approvals. And so the same could be said for grim negatives. We still have people trying to use aminoglycoside monotherapy when they should be using a novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor because they don't have that susceptibility readily available, but they do have gent in front of them. And so I think that's just a kind of a tangent, but something to keep in mind that's really important when we talk reporting. Or the breakpoints that are being used by those systems are always behind. Oh, the breakpoints. Okay. So I was going to have us talk about comments on orders because I think so I'm, I'm torn on cascading. I think sometimes it is very, very, very effective. For example, we just implemented cascading in outpatient urines that if it's enterococcus, we only report ampicillin. We got rid of fluoroquinolones. 
you can call and ask for the fluoroquinolone Sensi, but otherwise it's gone. Cause I had this like 89 year old little old lady admitted after two weeks of Cipro with Cipro tox. And I was like, okay, I'm done. And I went on this like crusade against the urine culture reporting. <laughs> But, um, so those things I think super helpful, right? Other times we run that, you know, we've had patients started on DAPTO for bacteremia and bacteremia, assuming it was susceptible. It's cause it's VANC susceptible. It turns out it's DAPTO non-susceptible and just things like that. So I think it's a fine line and it, and then I'm also, I'm a gram negative person. So like, I kind of like seeing the entire report on gram negatives. Cause I like guessing the genotype behind the phenotype, but like, I'm just a loser in that regard. Um, but I do that too. <laughs> it's so fun. It's like my favorite game. Right. But, um, all right, let's do comments and then come back to breakpoints. but breakpoints are ooh, okay. So comments though, because so cascading is torn, but I think Mary, your point is so well taken that a cascade with transparency. So I love Romney, how you said you educated people on what the cascades were, and then you can maybe add education on top of the cascade with a comment and that further, you know, refines and improves the outcome of that culture. So let's talk about your thoughts on order comments then, because there's a balance there too. What do we think about adding, adding comments to culture results? I'll go first. I'm super passionate about this. I think that there's so much we can add. Obviously the less is more like someone isn't going to read a two paragraph thing, but I think just highlighting important things about management for whatever organism or whatever site of infection is super important. So uh, at Intermountain, we just started um, on all staph aureus blood cultures to say IV antibiotics are standard of care, ID consult is recommended because we have so, so many cases of patients coming in the ED they think it's either a contaminant or it can be treated, you know, PO, they don't get looked at by a physician, they have a spinal abscess, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had just implemented like two months ago, this new comment. So hopefully um, we're going to see more ID consults, especially in the ED when these patients leave, um, call our ID physician on call and make sure that that was appropriate or um, in most of the cases or bring them in. Another one that I we're starting to work on that I think is important too is Staph aureus bacteria. So urine cultures with Staph aureus um, and saying something along the lines of this is not normal urinary flora. Um, there's concern for you know bloodstream seeding. And then um, we actually have an ED culture callback program and we were gonna put a link to that, um, that callback. So, all that callback like discussion that talks about you know these are the patients where um you can find it like urinary catheters but for other patients where you know it's a 21 year old iv drug user um, who has a uti in the ed um, maybe we should be doing a little bit more exploring and getting blood cultures for that patient so those are two of my favorite examples i could really talk for like three hours on this so i will hand it over to the rest because i'm sure they have interesting comments too i i am a big fan of comments i you know whether or not they get read is a question. It, I think that sometimes they are. I had one clinician tell me at UCLA that comments on the lab report was like the voice of God telling you what to do. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure nobody thinks that, like nobody. <laughs> but he was passionate about it. Um, but I do think it's helpful because if people are reading them, then you know maybe they've learned a little something. And so I think it's an instance where you can do continual feedback and education kind of in a passive way, um, just by having that reinforcement. You see it on the report enough times, it just kind of becomes ingrained. Um, I do think you need to check up on them though. And so we, one of another anecdote, um, 
at UCLA, we had developed, and this is like showing how old I am. We did PNA fish for yeast in blood, very exciting new technology, rapid yeast <laughs> ID. And so it just gives you the identification of, you know, albicans or glabrata or cruzii. And so we had, you know, these, what we thought were really clever comments about, you know, common susceptibility profile. So if it's, you know, candida albicans, all of our isolates are susceptible to fluke, go with fluke. Um, and then for cruzii, we said they're intrinsically resistant to fluconazole. And it was the craziest thing. The only comment any ever, anybody ever read was the Candida cruzii comment. And so the, the word got out that Candida are often resistant to fluconazole. And we saw this huge increase in the kind of Candida usage. And it was, it's like really psych, like an interesting psychological experiment to see how that like got out amongst all the house staff. But so you do have to check in and say like, are people reading them? Is it having the intended impact? And if it isn't, do I need to reconsider how I'm gonna write my comments? the best of plants, right? We never know how it's, mm -hmm. it is fascinating how end users perceive what we think are good ideas. So I think mm -hmm. QIing your work is super important. Mm -hmm. Um, one of our, um, one of the members of our SIDP publications and podcast committee asked me to specifically ask this question. So I want to make sure that I honor that, uh, they work at a community hospital. That's a part of a large health system. And a lot of their, testing is, is sent out. It's to reference micro labs. And they have tried as a stewardship team to implement cascading and comments and are told by some reference laboratories that they can't because that would perhaps be an increased liability or comments sound prescriptive and they're, they feel like their hands are a bit tied. Do you have any advice on, on ways we can potentially work with larger reference laboratories or at this point, is there not much we can do? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the reference lab. Um, I, you know, and I know, again, one of the challenges and speaking back to my UCLA experience, we uh, acquired a lot of outpatient provider kind of practices and um, they were so unhappy when they had to send their lab work to us because we, you know, we only worked things up that were clinically relevant and, you know, we didn't just do whatever they asked. And um, so it was a bit of a learning curve to understand that like good quality microbiology does not mean reporting everything that grows and doing testing on everything that you get. Um, and they kind of have a different stance where they're serving the masses. And so it's really hard to predict what one institution versus another might need. That being said, I'd be interested to hear Joe's comments on this of whether or not the CDC has any initiatives to help with, you know, lab stewardship when it comes to a reference lab model. I don't have anything specific I can point to, although we have thought about this because I know this is a major a drawback. I mean, even just something simple like you were mentioning it with UCLA that a lot of hospitals are kind of merging and consolidating. And if, for example, all their formularies aren't getting, you know, homogenous, you know, becoming the same, the lab has to now report out a bunch more drugs to make sure that they're covering. So even though one drug, they might not need to report out for one hospital, it's a lot of work for the lab to be reporting out a different thing at each institution. And so one thing you know, an idea, and I haven't seen a publication and I don't have evidence I can point to where I like know somebody is doing this, but it seems like working with the information officer or the people with the medical record at your institution that you just accept the data from, you know, insert whatever commercial laboratory as, you know, in the full, and then you guys, you know, your institution 
adds those comments or your institution, you know, does those, you know, you eliminate drugs that aren't on your formulary, et cetera, and that you just have to do extra work on the back end. And so I don't have, you know, for the colleague who reached out to you about that, if they wanted to do that, you know, they can reach out to me. I really want to have people publish this or put this out and as examples that I can point to and say, like, here is a small place that's getting 30 drugs on their report back from a commercial laboratory, but then in their medical record, it's only these 12 drugs and it has this comment that is helpful to them. Um, it seems to me that that should be possible. And so I just, I don't have like an instance I can point to. If they're interfaced, right, they should be able to do it. It depends on like how they're receiving the data. So like there's, you know, sometimes you get the reports from the reference lab and that just gets scanned in as is, which is like, the worst. Um, but if you're, inter <laughs> if you're interfaced with them, then you might be able to kind of scrub the data a bit to make it more applicable to your population. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Joe. It's a good idea. Yeah, that's, I will absolutely connect you with them. That's, this is what Breakpoints is all about, you guys, bringing people together. I know that they'll be very interested to work with you. So I will, I will connect you after this on that. All right. Speaking of breakpoints, I'm actually I'm I'm not even gonna say anything. I'm just gonna say, Romney, go off about breakpoint updates. <laughs> this needs no introduction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a sad situation. <laughs> it is. I mean, I mean, it's not all bad. I think that a lot of people it's mostly bad. But it's, it's mostly bad. It's pretty it's, bad. It's not great. Yeah. It's yeah. Not great. I mean, no. So that this I think that the challenge is that, and okay, so like, I'll just give my, my take on it. I think the challenge is that susceptibility test devices are 510k cleared, which means once you get it on the market, you're done. You don't really have to update it. Uh, you have to still like monitor safety data and all that kind of stuff, but breakpoint adjustments are not something that is easily pointed to as a safety, you know, reportable event. Um, although I think if people listening have examples of that, I am all ears because I think it does happen. It's just sometimes under the radar a little bit. Anyway, so, you know, once you have your device cleared, it, it's out there, it's on the market. And so the FDA really doesn't have any mechanism to get manufacturers to update or to have a timeline for those updates. It, it gets really complicated from a regulatory perspective, but the way to do it would be to have them require a different route through the FDA, which is a, a pre-market approval type process. But we don't want that either, right? Because then that introduces delays to getting new drugs on the panel. So it's kind of like this catch-22 where you don't have a good process to get them updated routinely, but you also don't want to make it so hard to get new drugs added to these panels. And so it really, I think, is like sitting here today, not a great situation where not all the systems are up to date and labs don't necessarily know that. I mean, I think a lot of people assume if you're running an FDA cleared test, it should be up to date with the FDA breakpoints, but that's not the case, let alone CLSI breakpoints or UCAS breakpoints, you know, whoever you want to use. I'm not going to say people have to use CLSI, although a little biased I on that regard. <laughs> I think I, I have an example I'll tell you. And then I, yeah. I, Mary's like in our zoom, she's like leaning into her yeah. camera. I'm like yeah. so excited for her to talk about this within her mountain. I'm sure we faced similar struggles. So I, in COVID started doing telestewardship, right. To reach mm -hmm. our community hospital. I think we all started doing some form of telemedicine and I'm working with the community hospital. That's about an hour outside of Pittsburgh, about 160 bed hospital. And they, the fluoroquinolone breakpoints were lowered in January of 2019. Okay. So that's like 
that's a that's a long a lot of years ago. It might be a hundred years ago if you count 2020 as 85 years. Um, but so and I we had a patient with pseudomonal bacteremia that got discharged from on Cipro and got readmitted. And they're still just reporting less than or equal to less than or equal to the one for the fluoroquinolones because they're yeah. still, their panels are still not updated. And so luckily we started doing telestewardship with them. And that was our, we worked with the micro lab director, but reporting is a huge pain when you can't use the automated panel. And then they're not going to validate a Cipro e-test for like two pseudomonal bacteremias a year. You know, it's not actually even worth it for them to have in-house Cipro yeah. testing. And, um, so I don't have an answer. I just know it's a, a problem, um, which I hate that I usually try to have an answer, but yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody just needs to up their game to be totally honest. I, I don't think anybody is, you know, uh, doing a great job. I think the labs just need to take ownership of it. Yes. It's a pain in the butt to do the validation. It's difficult. Your data is not going to look great, but you know what, at the end of the day, if you're using the wrong breakpoint, you're getting very major errors. So even if you validate the new breakpoint and your data is not perfect, it's probably better than using the break, the old breakpoint. I think, you know, institutionally hospitals need to support this effort, right? It takes time. It takes people. It takes IT resources to do it. I think the companies need to up their game and get, you know, with the program and update their breakpoints in a timely manner. And a lot of them are, which is fantastic, but not all of them. And I think, you know, FDA has got to come up with an easier pathway to get these systems up. You know, this is like every single person involved in the process needs to kind of up their game a little bit. And I don't think that any of us can sit back and like point fingers at who, whose fault it is. I think it's like collectively all of our faults and we need to just get better, get better. <laughs> we, at are, we are all sinking. Yeah. Yes. I'll, I mean, cause like, so at this hospital, for example, cause I, for our listeners. So what we did as the band-aid right now is we just report all fluoroquinolones as are. And I mean, that's like, maybe people are like, oh, sweet. Like, why would we ever update the breakpoint? But like, I'll say it as a surgical pharmacist, sometimes a fluoroquinolone is exactly the perfect drug and it's the drug my patient needs and I can't get the susceptibility testing. And so that's tough. All right, Mary, go. I know you're like ready to, ready <laughs> no, to talk. No, just to piggyback <laughs> off that, like my OPAT heart just like goes out for all these pseudomonal UTIs that are now reported as are and for that, maybe that institution, it's not that many, but for mine, it would be a lot. And I have to write all those OPAD notes. <laughs> I it wouldn't be great. So, I mean, I, I think Romney kind of already hit on it. Like we just need to do better and have a better process as a, like a stewardship pharmacist. It's a nightmare. Like we've been working for six months on how to do, how to change our cefazolin reporting um, for the updated brain point. Like so many different ideas like that wouldn't work with lab or wouldn't work with us or we don't feel comfortable with like we're six months into this and we still don't have a solution and you know I I, I, there, I have a lot of ideas of ways we could do but if we could just get the breakpoints matching on the panel that would solve everything right six months of work if we just had a streamlined like one month process to updating it that would be so much better mm-hmm. um and I think the two challenges are, you know, can you even get panels that go low enough? Because if you don't, I mean, like what you said, Erin, I guess we're just reporting everything as R, because how, how can you know? Um, and then the other flip side, maybe you do have panels that go down to the new breakpoints, but your lab isn't comfortable reporting that. So do you have the bandwidth to look at every single patient that's on that drug that and make sure or call the, call the lab. Like for some people, yeah, for bigger institutions, absolutely not. Do you have that bandwidth to go in and check and call every, and you're the one that is the only one that knows to do this. The, the frontline providers don't normally realize that the breakpoints have been updated. Um, and then, yeah, comments again, bringing up comments. Do you just add a comment that says the CLSI and, you know, 
FDA breakpoints or don't match the panel and to use this drug with caution. Uh, like yeah. again, I, there's so many ideas, but if we could just streamline it and save all of parties in general uh, months of work, it would be great. Yeah. <laughs> it would really help me out. For sure. <laughs> well, and Cephaslin's particularly challenging, right? Because you've got the urine breakpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I've had institutions that update to the urine breakpoint, like, yes, I'm on CLSI. And then they're reporting isolates from the blood with an MIC of 16 as susceptible. Mm -hmm. It's like, right. um, and then, and then there's the FDA breakpoint and then there's the CLSI breakpoint and not a single system is updated with either of those. Um, and you know, there's a microbiology issue here too, which is like your wild type population sits right in the middle of that breakpoint. And so that, I mean, for that particular drug, that's the reason why none of the systems are updated because it's impossible to get good validation data um, for it. We kind of did a hand wavy thing where we used the more conservative FDA breakpoint because we were getting higher MICs and we used the higher dose. And so we kind of were able to convince ourselves that it was the right thing to do. but. It took a lot of like brain power to come up with the right solution. Like you're saying, I can't imagine like, you know, your small community hospitals have, right. have, have the bandwidth to do that. Like, like we no had way. several ideas, like, so do we report it like we do penicillin for meningitis? Do we have mm -hmm. a, you know, systemic infection breakpoint? No, that would require a lab going into every single urine culture and reporting that. That is not possible in a 23 mm -hmm. hospital. Like, that's not possible. Other ideas is like when a provider is ordering the urine culture, and this is where we're at right now. Spoiler, we haven't decided. <laughs> but do we have them choose systemic infection or uncomplicated? Um, and uncomplicated meaning just lower UTI. I'm not talking about postmenopausal women because I still think that's probably fine to use Keflex with an MIC of four for those patients for non-complicated UTI. But like, how do we now explain what uncomplicated is um, versus complicated when we're talking about systemic infection? So yeah, more to come later, I guess, when we finally yeah. decide what we're gonna do. And so I had like this giant luxury when I was at UCLA that we made our own panels. And so we made up a drug called oral cephalosporins that we reported on urine isolates with a comment saying this is only for uncomplicated infections. And then we had a different drug called cefazolin that we reported with the systemic breakpoint and it worked out really well. But the only way to do that is if you like home grow the whole system mm -hmm. with, it's really hard to have one drug tested and have that one result report into two different fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that one's a nightmare. I'm really jealous of UCLA's <laughs> homegrown. Yeah. That's awesome. But that, I think labs don't have the ability to do this though. There's whatever, 5,000 hospitals in America and there's yeah. the people do not have the vast majority of people do not have the time, resources, knowledge, ability to, to do this. And so it's a, it is a huge problem for, for patients. Um, Joe, do you have any, <laughs> I don't know if you can add to, to on top of that conversation, but anything to add to this breakpoint discussion? I'll just say, you know, the fact that you found an institution using out-of-date quinolone breakpoints that are only like two years old is like, you know, completely, you know, completely expected. I think Romney, I don't know that paper you had, I think in 2018, that there were still like a huge percentage of labs in California using the 2010 carbapenem breakpoints. I don't know if that's still true today, but you know, this, this is not like just labs are six months or 12 months behind. This is like, you know, a decade behind. And so, yeah, it's a big problem. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, actually. In ID, we're like, oh, it's within two years. We're probably on top of it. But Yeah, I think it's um, about a third of the labs in the United States are using 2009 breakpoints. 2009 breakpoints. Woof. That's so bad, you guys. <laughs> That's so bad. Yeah. Um, and, and and it's so hard. Oh, I'm sorry. But I was just going to say, it's yeah. the hard part about it is it's not like that's the, you know, 20 bed hospitals that are doing it. It's like some of the big reference labs that are doing it. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. Well, because so Mary, you said two things first with the panels, even if you are lucky enough to have a proactive lab, that's like, let's get new panels to update breakpoints. We just did this um, at Pitt and we looked at all the available panels and like, you can't have it all. So we had to like, Ryan and I were having like, not arguments, but like discussions on like, healthy, we're like, healthy we're discussions. like <laughs> yeah, collegial conversations over like, I'm like, I don't really care about Tobermycin going down to one. Cause like, first of all, all the isolates MICs are one. And second of all, like we never use aminoglycosides. I was like, I, we need like the Cipro was non-negotiable. And then I really wanted Zosin as low as it could go. Cause that gets into whatever other discussions. So you, you can't have it all. You got to like look and compare across panels and pick and choose like which ones you want to be able to report. Um, so I think that's, you know, something to consider too. The other thing, Mary, that you said it, it like in looking at these reports and whatnot, it's really hard to convince people to use a quote resistant drug. And I think we, as pharmacists, this was near and dear to our hearts in terms of PKPD optimization and in terms of using breakpoints to phenotypically account for resistance. And so, you know, we could have this debate all day, but if you have mirror, an enterobacter with mirapenem at a two and it's carbapenemase negative, are you really going to put that patient on ceftazavi at a one, or are you going to put them on six grams a day, prolonged infusion mirapenem and get away with it? And like, we know that, but maybe everyone else doesn't. And that I think is an issue too. So that's the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up the pod today is this concept let's we can stick with i guess esbl confirmation or we can do cre confirmation either one um but this phenotype genotype discrepancy does it matter does it not um what are your guys's thoughts your lab has to be reporting mic's first off right and not all do some do not all do i know yes yeah. or some just say snr still Yes. We're talking about outdated breakpoints. Yes, <laughs> I get that's right. How would you ever know, right? Right, right. So, um, I guess I have two two thoughts on this. I, I think for the carbapenemases, I am a huge fan of confirming resistance mechanism, and um, I, I think it's it's partly because you want to know your epidemiology. Like you really, really want to know that epidemiology. It's partly because. I, it's how I have caught like every single lab error because <laughs> they happen, right? Like you'll have a, we had a patient like two weeks ago who had an NDM1 producing CLEB and a non-NDM1 producing CLEB that was all mixed in together. It was really hard to pull them apart. And the only way we figured it out is that we had a carbapenemase test that was positive. And so we kept looking until we found it. So I, I think that it's important from that level. I think it's super important from an epidemiological perspective. I mean, I've had huge big, bad outbreaks um, at institutions that we've only been able to really figure out in a timely fashion because we knew, hey, this is like an unusual resistance mechanism for us. Like what's going on with all these patients that have it all of a sudden? 
And, and I think from a treatment perspective, it is helpful. I will say it doesn't replace testing for the new drugs. And I, I, I know testing new drugs is not always easily available, but I've seen enough cases of unexpected, like KPCs resistant to Ceftaz AV or Merovaber or whatever, that you, you still need to do that component. But I just, I don't know, I feel like it gives you a more fulsome picture of what's going on. The ESBLs are too complicated. And I think that the way we test it gives you like, that much like a little teeny bit of information um and a whole bunch of unknowns and i think it's we just don't have a great way to do it unless you're able to do whole genome sequencing routinely yeah joe what are your thoughts that would be so cool (laughs) well being within my perspective is now at a public health institution i really support you know carbapenemase testing because the infection control implications are very important and so um knowing that you have a rare carbapenemase, probably, I don't know, for example, OXA48, it might not have a uh, treatment implication because the person who had a meropenem-resistant isolate was going to get ceftazavi anyway, maybe. But just knowing that you have this mechanism that your institution previously hadn't had and now does, I think is important. And it may change who your infection control department decides to swab or what kind of interventions they decide to do. So I think, and even knowing just whether or not, even if you're not even doing molecular testing, but you're just doing MSIM or something or CARB-NP, knowing that an isolate is or is not a carbapenemase producer definitely has infection control implications. Personally, like I like also think from the treatment perspective, I agree with Romney that you always, any drug that you're going to prescribe, you need to do AST for, but it definitely can give you a heads up when you're picking therapy on day two and all the ASTs not back. Knowing some of that information, it can be very helpful, um, but certainly from an infection control standpoint, it's crucial. Mary, do you have anything to add? I think really the only thing that I have to add uh, is not on the CRE perspective on the, because we don't really see a ton in in my hospital, but on the ESBL perspective, when I get that report back, you know, before susceptibilities are back, I can change to carbapenem in a patient with bacteremia super quick. I get those results much faster than I do my ASTs, which are still coming. And I think on the flip side of that, um, knowing it's not an ESBL um, for some of our ceftriaxone non-susceptible enterobacters is really useful to me. Um, When I first started um, at uh, my institution, we had a meropenem problem. We used it on literally everybody. So much to the fact that like pseudomonas, that was our least reliable anti-pseudomonal they lacked him. Like that's terrible. So it was, it's been a huge goal of mine to reduce that. Um, and I, I just did a quick look at all my enterobacter, uh, enterobacter bacteremias for the last year. And 18% um, of those were ceftriaxone resistant, non-ESBLs, but cefepime susceptible. And I was able to use cefepime in those patients. Um, I felt comfortable doing that. So from a stewardship perspective, I, I find it really useful. Um, and I'm glad we have that ability to, to report that. Awesome point. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think the challenge, and this is where I'm saying, like, we're kind of blinded a little bit to it is we know about CTXM generally, but we don't know about the others. And so like in your example with Enterobacter, there's not a ton of ESVLs in Enterobacter, but when there are, they're shivs and TEMs, not CTXMs. And so, and it, it gets, I, I don't know, I just feel like we've kind of used the ESVL test as a bit of a, 
I don't know, we've held it to a higher standard than maybe we should have in the past, all of us, um, it, especially like the ones that come off the automated systems where the positive and negative predictive values are so-so. So I, I think it, it is something that would be great to have and it's like a, a good pitch for better technology development, but I don't, I, and, and I think that it's helpful to know you have a CTXM, but I do get a little bit worried about relying on no CTXM detected as being really, a big change driver in early therapy adjustments. Romney, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say that I think the problem is our, a lot of the rapid diagnostic technologies we have, if you're doing other confirmation, maybe a little different, but RDT platforms do not detect for all ESBLs. And so I have caught myself and colleagues saying like, oh, it's ESBL negative. And I'm like, wait a minute, we, it detects for like one ESBL of the <laughs> 300 ESBLs out there. So I would agree with everything you guys said. I'm a big fan of confirmation. One, I find it like just fascinating and interesting. And two, I think it's super important for the patient in front of you and subsequent patients. I think the one thing, Joe, you alluded to this, but I think the infection prevention piece is a conversation we need to keep having. And almost like Romney's, like we could all be better with breakpoints, which we can. I think we can be better with infection prevention. I think we kind of rest on like, oh, put them in contact. It's fine. Contact precautions suck. And mm -hmm. patients don't want to be in them. Families don't want to be in them. Nurses don't want to be in them. Doctors don't want to be in them. And so, you know, if you have a non-carbapenemase producing carbapenem resistant enterobacter, does the gown and gloves help you not transmit that to another patient? I don't know, probably not. And so um, right now, I mean, we currently put all CROs in, in contact and I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing for patients. And I think that's something we can keep like prompting on and reevaluating as, as time goes on. But yeah. um, so to close out though, this brings us to the best part of the podcast. This is a new segment that we've started this year. And this segment is called, I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts as we close out each episode. And so for today's I Feel Nerdy, I was thinking we have to stay in the micro theme, of course, and I want you to just share your favorite bug and why. And if you can't think of a bug, I was like, you know, we should have options here. You can also tell me your favorite lab test or your favorite breakpoint, really whatever you want, your favorite something related to this topic. I'll go first. Okay. Staph aureus is my favorite. It's probably because I trained in Detroit, but Staph aureus is my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much I can do with it, whether that's like identifying patients that need to be seen by an ID physician, synergy, uh, you know, sites of infection, what drugs we use to get there. When do you stop combination therapy? Can we use oral for these patients? Like there's just so much about Staph aureus. I could read about it forever and never get bored. So that's probably the Detroit in me. <laughs> that is so the Detroit in you. But, <laughs> but like mad respect, you know, synergy is cool. So Basilin forever. I love it. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things. In general, I just really like looking at plates and looking at bacteria. So things that have to do with biochemicals or something like that, as opposed to a molecular test that just tells you the answer. I kind of really like just the detective work that goes into that and just... I'll be really sad if like 30 years from now, like there are no people who like know how to do that stuff anymore. <laughs> Hopefully it's all still uh, retained knowledge. But 
One bug that I really like is strep pneumo um, because when you get it from like a blood culture that it gets streaked out and they put that P disc right down on the uh, plate. So it's like giving you this information before, you know, it even you do Maldi or anything else like that on it. Um, and then when you're looking at it really closely, how it has the little dimple donut, I find really cool. The other thing that I enjoyed doing when I was in the micro lab all the time was labs for the most part don't report like which bottle is positive like if the aerobic bottle is positive or the anaerobic will just say you know one out of two positive or two out of two positive and I always thought it was cool for example knowing that pseudomonas is um, an aerobe and is not facultative that, so when you have some gram negative that happens to be positive in both aerobic bottles and the anaerobics aren't hitting positive at all it kind of gives you a sense of like what you could be dealing with as opposed to like if the anaerobe bottle popped up. So that was a little trick that I always thought was kind of cool. That's uh, awesome. Thanks for sharing. All right, Romney, you're up. Can I just say microbiology? Like I geek out on all of it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like I really do. Um, no, I mean, I think any form of phenotypic susceptibility testing is like super intriguing to me and then linking that to the genomes. So I, one of my favorite favorite things to do is like, you know, taking a cohort of bugs with interesting phenotypes, sequence them out, kind of really understand what's going on from a mechanism perspective. We've been doing a lot of this with serratia, which is like the Vanderbilt bug. I don't know if it's like the South, it's more humid here. I don't think I ever saw serratia at UCLA, but there's buckets of it here. Um, and so that's been really fun for me. And, you know, plus serratia is kind of a cool bug. It's got some interesting history. I love it. I, mine's probably similar. I think my favorite, I was thinking about this a lot took this question very seriously. Mm -hmm. I think, I think my, I think my favorite bug is Enterobacter for really all the reasons we've highlighted. Um, I I've also admittedly kind of, kind of dove into research in Enterobacter over the past couple of years. Cause it's our biggest carbapenem resistant organism problem outside of pseudo, you know, we don't see KPC anymore because antibiotics work and that's great. Um, so carbapenem resistant Enterobacter, I think it highlights this whole treatment induced resistance and the role of stewardship and micro collapse. I think it brings up the phenotype genotype discrepancy and PKPD optimization. Mm -hmm. And I, it kind of challenges the status quo in just about every way and thinking about how we think about these things. And I went off on my infection prevention rant already. So, um, that's a bug I've spent a lot of time with over the past year or so. Cool. And I, I enjoy it a lot, but and with that, you guys, I think that wraps it up. This has been such a fun podcast episode to record. It's such like a wealth of knowledge. I cannot thank you guys enough for your time. Um, and for our audience, I just want to say thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. I've been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers today were Dr. Romney Humphreys, Dr. Mary Hutton, and Dr. Joe Latring. This episode was produced by Zara Escobar and Rachel Britt. It was edited by Kritika Madwala. Andrew Rubio and Jillian Hayes. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Angesto and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast episodes. So thank you so much for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials, both now and for the future. <laughs>